Welcome to Geek Freaks. I am Frank, and today I'm joined by Melissa Flores. How are you doing, Melissa? I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for having I'm me. I'm doing very, very good. Today we're talking about The Dead Lucky. It's a pretty new series that you're working with over at Image. Can you kind of break down what The Dead Lucky is all about? Absolutely. The Dead Lucky is the latest book that has come out of the Massiverse, which is Image's new superhero universe that's spun out of an amazing comic book called Radiant Black by Kyle Higgins. Uh, thankfully, um, I've been friends with Kyle for a little while, and there was an opportunity to uh, create a new book that was part of his universe. Uh, other books that are a part of it are uh, Rogue Sun by Ryan Parrott, who's amazing. And Inferno Girl Red, which is an upcoming graphic novel by Matt Groom. And I apologize, I'm not um, giving all the artists, but they all deserve all the credit. And I apologize for not giving them all right now. For some reason, they're all blanking in my head. But um, and we also have a Radiant Red miniseries that just came out and a Radiant Pink miniseries. And all the superhero series uh, are, are basically superhero stories told uh, in a new way for a new world. Yeah. So uh, we're basically taking superheroes, which everybody knows is a comic book staple and medium, but we're giving, uh, we don't have the baggage of the last 50 years and 20,000 reboots to tell a compelling narrative with them. And so each one of our books redefines a superhero in a different way. The Dead Lucky itself, uh, which I have co-created with my artist, uh, French Carlo Magno, is about a veteran soldier who has come home from Afghanistan after losing most of her platoon in a horrific accident and discovered that the city she grew up in, San Francisco, has been privatized by a company called Moro. And as a result, created this kind of battleground of a city in which uh, Moro wants to essentially fix all the problems with San Francisco uh, but in doing so, kind of bring a, a military-esque martial law to the land. And there is another gang called the Salvation Gang who obviously don't take that very well. And they're kind of trying to stop that, but in very violent methods. And so it literally has turned her city into a little bit of a war zone. And Bibi, being a soldier, knows how to go to war. So she has uh, decided to um, step in and try to do what she can uh, to take the fight against Morrow. Unfortunately, um, or fortunately in this case, she has uh, come away from that horrific accident with superpowers, which allows her to uh, conduct or control electrical currents and see energy spirits. And she uses those uh, energy spirits, these electrical spirits, to possess machines and control them. And uh, she does that uh, with the with a one called Ghost, and she creates a new mech with him, and that is her partner, and they are out and about trying to stop San Francisco from being taken over. Energy spirits. I was trying to figure out, okay, are the ghosts that she's just seeing, or is it, you know, actually something that's actually there, which... I mean, that's the question. The, question. the one thing I've always been really fascinated by is the... Um, the idea that energy never stops existing. Energy just changes mm -hmm. uh, form. So... And all we are is a bunch of energy, right? So what happens when we go away? Does the energy go away too or does it stay? And that's kind of, so it's a little different than say like Rogue Sun, which is very paranormal right. based um, with actual ghosts and actual demons and, and werewolves and that sort of thing. Uh, BB, what BBC's is kind of a mix between the paranormal and the tech. 
Yeah. Uh, we're trying to very much keep this like ghost in the machine kind of aesthetic and theme for that book. I'm enjoying it quite a bit so far. I've already read the first two and I can't, I can't wait for the third one to come out. Did on you the read the second one? I did, yes. You're the first person that I that I like talked to that has read the second one. Did you like I it? I did. I'm especially liking her relationship with Ghost and how it's kind of like this combatant. It's they're 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 almost like brothers, brother and sister, you know, siblings. Yeah. And you you know they're got each other's back, but they're always on each other's nerves a little bit. Oh, my God. You're the first person I know that's, that's read issue two that's not in my immediate circle. So I was like, I want to ask you so many questions, but we can do that. Okay, after. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful series so far. And I really like the fact that we're setting up this future world that feels so relatable. Doesn't feel like it's that distant future. And the problems we're seeing here today. Was there a particular thing you wanted to make sure to tell through this story and bring a light to? Absolutely. Yes. Um, the book was inspired heavily by my relationship with my girlfriend uh, or my partner, one of the two, either one. We've been together forever. I don't even know what she <laughs> is anymore. But um, the only thing I know is that we're not married, but she's basically my partner. And uh, she has, um, she's a veteran. She was in the army for a very long time. And now she's not in the army for a very long time. And through her and through her experiences and her friends, um, I kind of became fascinated with the idea of PTSD and survivor's guilt um, and how that affects our soldiers when they come home after the incredible experiences that a lot of them have. Um, and so this book is essentially a love letter to those kind of people, not just to those people, but the people that love them, the moms, the dads, the brothers, the sisters, the girlfriends, the boyfriends, the friends who... Um, come home to an entirely different, or witness an entirely different person come back and the loneliness that they must feel of not being able to share uh, the experiences that they had um, with the people that love them that are home. And so I really wanted to shed a light on PTSD, on survivor's guilt, on what that means, not in a way that sensationalizes it, but or even in a way that tries to fix it, but more in, in a way to to understand it and also give a little attention to it, just to say, hey, uh, you're not alone. Other people are experiencing this too, because I imagine it could be a very lonely place. Yeah. Speaking about that loneliness, we see that she talks to herself often, and then she's also talking to these ghosts. Is that a way of her kind of processing that loneliness, kind of creating another voice in the room with her? Yes. I mean, you've read you've read one and two, so I don't know how spoiler we want to get. But yes, um, I think narratively, as you know, speaking outside of that world, what I or, or in her head as the writer, I really wanted a way for the audience to understand what's going on in her head because she's a very closed off character. She doesn't um, really speak to anybody, not even her therapist, about what's actually going on in her head, But which is fine for the characters around her, but I did not want that for the readers. But I also didn't want this like Batman-esque, like, I am the night and in this room is my darkness. Like, I didn't want to, her to be that person either. It doesn't feel like she's that person. And so I wanted to find narratively a really interesting way to draw the reader in, make them feel like a friend to her. Um, and so that became a very concentrated effort to have her speaking directly to the reader, but in the story, speaking to herself, yeah. supposedly. And that is how she gets away with it. Now, at the end of the book, you realize, uh, the first book, she's actually not just talking to herself. She's actually talking to these energy spirits that only she can see that linger around her. Um, 
But I mean, that's that's a problem for her and that the only people she really opens up to are the people that are no longer there. And so I really wanted this dichotomy of the people that are actively trying to love her, um, not being able to really get into her, but her still being stuck between this world, between the living and the dead. So it kind of had two different parts for me. Narratively, I wanted the readers to feel a little more invested, and I'd hope that was a way to do that. Um, and two, I just... I, I liked the idea of one, we all talk to ourselves, even if we don't admit it. Um, but two, but she just does, she just admits it. Um, but two, you know, it's a way for her for her to stay connected to these things that she sees that nobody else does. Yeah. I just like how it's an expansion on the inner dialogue that we see so often in comic books, the the cloud bubbles that, you know, but this time she's actually talking to herself. And then when you see Eddie reference it, you're like, oh wow, yeah, I'm not the only one noticing this is off. These bo- these bubbles are a little bit different. And I think her being seen as a little bit off by others is probably very common for somebody who just came back from, you know, a war front like that. Yeah. And I think she uses it honestly to her advantage. You know, as she says more than once in the first issue, the army made me weird. Um, And it's very flippant and dismissive, but I think um, only if people choose to take it that way. And I think she does it because she knows when she says that, and you kind of see it a little bit when she has that interaction with the soldier or with the Moro guardian at the beginning where um, she raises, she makes a point of telling him she just got out from therapy and he kind of does that little like mm-hmm. thing with his hand. It's like, oh, it's a Lieutenant Dan situation. Like it's so easy to dismiss it now that it's such a trope now that, you know, soldiers come back with PTSD and that they have problems or whatever. And I wanted to kind of have her use that a little yeah. bit if she could to not deal with or not have to focus on the fact that she is, has these legitimate ghosts that are around her. This is a very easy way for her to stay weird uh, and not have to have people question it. Yeah, it disarms them immediately. It's perfect. Speaking of that therapy session, one of the little details I truly liked is while the we see the therapist's notes and we don't necessarily see the therapist write new notes, but constantly circling old notes as if it's the same thing Bibby's saying every time she comes in, she's yeah. just repeating a script that's in her head. Yeah, I mean, the therapy thing was very important to me. I feel like it was, um, I don't want to give therapists a bad name at all because I think they all try very, very hard. But And I think that BB is is doing the right thing in going to therapy. But I think also, um, it also was a way to kind of point out that um, therapy only works as long as you're ready for yeah. it to work. Absolutely. And, um, and it felt very much like a ceremonial, let's just get through this thing. And I think... Um, in showing that the therapist is human too, and that she's not used to dealing with this kind of person, um, it allows them both, I think, to adjust over the narrative. Yeah. And um, I'm hoping to be able to bring the therapist back and have BB continue to have these sessions. I mean, the first six issues are a little bit of a a crazy ride. It's there's not going to be a lot of time for her to go back to therapy, <laughs> but um, but I'm hoping as as through the issues we see the therapist more and um, and see the growth in that relationship. Because I think. If they both put in the effort, it will actually start helping. Uh, BB's just not in the right place for it yet. And just like so many other things that I'm really enjoying about this, you know, radiant black universe um, created over an image, the fact that we see a therapist is something we don't see in other superhero worlds. And yet, obviously, Batman would need to talk to somebody. You know, Green Lantern is constantly in space and back on Earth. He would have to discuss that with somebody. And it's good to see that a therapist isn't is being normalized. And and I think that's a really good source. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, I grew up um, in a Latino family and um, I was very ADHD, extremely. And um, 
even just begging my mom to take me to even see a psychiatrist to get a learning, like to be diagnosed. I knew I had it. I knew something was wrong with me um, because I was like, I didn't understand. I had like been treated as very gifted growing up in school. It was never a problem because I had these small classes. And every time I was bored, I would get these other uh, problems that the teachers would give me when I was done with my work. Um, you know, I had been asked to skip a grade and like done a bunch of stuff. So I knew I wasn't dumb. But once I got to high school and I went to this math and science school, the California Academy of Math and Science, um, I had such a hard time with like memorization and statistics. And like, I knew that there wasn't because I wasn't trying. And um, it was so frustrating to me uh, because I would beg, I'd be like, mom, like there's something wrong. And not like, not any, my mom was great. I had a lovely mother who loved us very much and worked very hard and was very supportive. But, you know, she hadn't grown up with that mentality that like, you know, Latinos, especially, I feel like we don't go to the doctor. (laughs) We don't go to the shrink. You don't want your family thinking that you're local, you know? And it's like, no, you're just lazy. There's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with you. And, um, as a testament to the growth of family, you know, I mean, now we have, you know, I have nieces, I have cousins and everybody, and it's such a completely different world where we make sure that they're, you know, my mom, my grandma, my sisters, everybody makes sure that they're properly seen by yeah. people and making sure that, you know, it's it's a different kind of parenting that exists now. And I think all, a lot of that happened um, because it was normalized. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I'm very grateful for that. But that's also why I wanted to just see... Um, the therapist in the office because I feel like everybody <laughs> should benefit from therapy at one yeah. point or another. I haven't done it nearly as much as I should, honestly. Yeah. But um, but even this is a way to kick my ass and get me back to go <laughs> to therapy because I need it. Well, in the more material, you can go in and ask questions like, what would a therapist say in the situation? <laughs> say I'm seeing two ghosts. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine? Like, are you here for research or therapy? I'm like, both. Yeah, can it be both? <laughs> Don't charge extra. <laughs> Yeah, you're building a really cool world here. It's a San Francisco uh, where we, we have two different major factions, obviously, and Bibby's creating this third one. I find myself not sure which one's the bad guy in this. Was that your intention where you weren't sure if you should be rooting for yes. the gang? <laughs> that is the intention because it is one of those things where so often, um, especially in a war story, which is essentially what this mm-hmm. is, there is, it's so easy to say there's a bad guy. Right. But when you get to the level of of these big conflicts, both people think the other people are the bad guys and they have very good reasons to do it. Um, Even if you look at the war that's happening in the Ukraine right now, these Russian soldiers, you know, were told that they were going in to save the Ukrainians. They didn't know how they would be received. Um. When you really look at conflict and um, what happens to both sides, I think it is one of those things. It's so it's so much easier if you just give somebody a bad guy to root for. But in a war story, if I want to tell it authentically, both sides have to really have a goal and think that they are the right. They're in the right. And um, it doesn't make it easy for me. For sure. And then like, uh, you know, um, Kyle Higgins, who creatively consults on every book, has like kicked my ass up about it. And he's like, but what does she want? What do they want? What is the point? And and I'm like, well, she doesn't know what she wants. So that's the point. You know, she's out. The only thing she knows how to do is to be a soldier. And so it's kind of an easy regression in her. But picking the side, like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? 
I mean, Moro has very good intentions. Mm -hmm. They want to, they see the problem in that, you know, we don't have privatized health. I mean, we don't have uh, universal health care and, and the, the police are underfunded and there's a big drug problem and there's crime on the rise and they're like, we know how to fix it. But unfortunately, when you include uh, corporations and profit, yeah. um, but the way they go about it maybe is not the best idea. And there's people in that company that maybe don't have the best interests of San Francisco at heart. Um, the same with Salvation Gang. You know, you have people who join who are very specifically, they they truly do not believe, look, this we don't need moral. We don't need relocation. We don't need any. And there's those people in there who are saying, my life has been ruined by Moro and I'm ready to fight back and take back my city. There's other people that are probably just there for the war. Yeah. And are just there for the chaos and the anarchy. And um, this win at all costs that happens. And and so that's why you see her basically trying to like figure out who the bad guy is. Mm-hmm. And because um, she's been in war zones before and she knows there's bad guys and good guys. But at the same time, like, we're the bad guys in some <laughs> In some instances, yeah. when, you know, people look at us, we're the bad guys that soldier, U.S. soldiers come in and they don't, we don't think we are, you know, we're just following orders. So it really, it's meant to be complicated and messy and um, a lot more sobering because we're on domestic soil. This isn't happening in some world, like yeah. some over the sea, overseas or across the borders that we can just pretend it doesn't happen. It's happening here. And, um, and so that's stuff that she's, constantly trying to figure out we will see her take sides like ultimately take a side um but i feel like that choice will be surprising and um and her reasons for doing it will be uh a little controversial i think but hopefully people will um will follow in a, enough to like see where the journey takes her yeah. i do like the idea of this like complex decision coming forward and and what would be easiest for her, someone who was a veteran and and would be just like, yeah, these guys are the good guys. Those guys are the bad guys. But just like today and all our problems today, that's just not the world we live in. So it's good to yeah. see her also live in that world. Yeah, yeah it would be inauthentic um, to not portray it that way, I think. You've worked so hard on, a, on other projects. I, I, my, I first intru- was introduced to you through Power Rangers, of course. And, and I think a lot of people are familiar with you through that. Was there anything that you brought forward from your work with that big project into this new one? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I learned I learned story on Power Rangers. I learned development. I learned I forged the relationships uh, that I continue to work today with on Power Rangers. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't know Kyle. I wouldn't know Ryan. I wouldn't know Daphna or any of the um, Matt or Michael if were it not for my work on Power Rangers. And so I think. One, learning how to work with those specific people, um, but two, just learning story and world building. We all were kind of doing that together, and I, and I got to learn from the best when it came to comic books. I still am learning uh, from people like Kyle and Michael and Ryan and Matt. You know, we sit in these big rooms, and and even Daphne, when we talk about Power Rangers, we sit in these rooms, and, and I'm constantly being challenged um, in very good ways on on how to narratively make my stories better and um and what i love about power rangers that it's it was a superhero story that was about good overcoming evil and and these constant barrage of uh, villains that come to try and take over the world um finding the depth in that 
And finding the color in that um, for a comic book was really validating and fun. And um, so to be able to, to take a good versus evil kind of story, a superhero story, and kind of put my own twist on it, but still set it in a world like the Massiverse, it let me feel like there were rules I could follow and that I wasn't alone in it. I think this would be a very different experience for me. Had it not, if this just been one, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. This wouldn't, you know, if it had been my first book, I wouldn't have had it with image. Right, right. <laughs> first of all, uh, it wouldn't have happened without Kyle. But, um, but also, you know, having it be set in this narrative and having, you know, these amazing, incredible writers, Eisner nominated writers, best selling writers um, on the book and giving me advice and telling me, you know, giving their perspective on the stories. Um, it's a blessing uh, that I could not have anticipated and I'm very thankful for. You sound like you've learned a lot from these guys and, and just this entire team. You were talking about trying to make a story better. What's that first thing you're going to do to try to make your baseline story and elevate it? Um, it's always character. You always have to, with every scene, and I am a staff writer on another show as well, and, and we're constantly battling with this. Um, you have to approach every scene with what, one, do we need it? Two, um, what does it get us? And three, what does it get the character? Like the character has, you have to know what a character wants in every single uh, interaction. You can't just have an interaction just to have it. You have to reveal something new about the character. You have to push the narrative forward or you have to, even something very innocuous, you have to reveal something about the world that's going to get you to where you're going especially in a comic book where the art is so precious. Yeah. You have to, there's no panel that is wasted. You know, you have 22 pages and maybe, you know, anywhere from one to six panels a page, seven if you're feeling particularly like mean to the artist, mm -hmm. to truly tell the story that you're trying to tell. So you have to be very specific um, and very open to collaboration as to what you want to show, because the artist also has opinions on what he or she is thinks is best for the story. And um, and so for me, um, it required adjusting. We originally had a six issue arc that I was really excited about. And then as we continued to write, it was one of those things that required us to pivot and be like, you know what, this is probably not the best direction. What can we do to make this feel tighter make this feel more succinct really address what bb wants and how she's going to get it and um it can be hard you know it can be rough because you have to take a lot of like ego bruising and be like you know you can't go into it being like i'm a genius everything's amazing that i write how dare you say this isn't working you can't do that you know if you want something to succeed you have to take especially you have to take notes and you have to be open to what people are telling you because there nobody is giving you notes if you trust them and these people are taking the time incredibly busy writers are taking time to read your stuff nobody is giving you notes that they think is just for the sake of giving a note they're giving you notes because they want the story to be better and they want the story to succeed and um as talented as I think that I am. And I know, I think I do have talent. It is one of those things where like these guys have been doing this a lot longer than me. So I have to, I have to listen to what they're saying. And it's never them telling me this is what you have to do with the book, but it's a lot of let's talk about how to make this book great. Yeah. And um, considering who I'm writing with on this series and who I'm following on Power Rangers, like the last thing I want to do is, is make this feel like the weak book. Yeah. <laughs> 
if that makes oh, sense. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> you've got a, you've got big shoes to fill, and and I think you're doing quite well at it. But yeah, it's it is think... tough. Now, taking this kind of constructive criticism, we'll say, um, can be very difficult for people in the creative field. And we talk to a lot of indie creators, indie comic book writers that are one man teams and stuff like that. They're just out there by themselves, and so they get their feedback from social media, from readers. How do you filter that from, say, a troll versus somebody trying to truly help you better yourself? Um, I think you, even just looking at the intention of what it is or the the comments that other people like, there are people that are just um, truly just angry people. Yeah. <laughs> there, There is an entitlement on social media, but I have been with, I was with Power Rangers for 10 years. I am no stranger to people hating my guts because they don't like something. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have noticed, um, it becomes very easy to filter out the people that just that are giving you true feedback versus people that are just like, I hate this and because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And um, you can't let those people get to you because it's going to happen no matter what. People become very attached to characters. People become very attached to story. Fandom is an incredibly precious thing. I mean, I wrote fan fiction. There were times when I wanted to kill the Glee writers. Like, I get it. what has helped me a lot was, um, you know, I was a producer for 10 years. I have been on the other, I have been in rooms where people have had to make decisions based on budget, based on narrative, based on marketing, based on that or stuff that is maybe not in the best interest of the story, or maybe a direction that we know may not be popular, but for A, B, and C, we had to do it. And, um, and you're not the only person giving notes sometimes. Sometimes you do have to take notes from people that aren't creatives because that is just the world we live in. And um, being in that position and being the person that gave those notes, not just for myself, but for the people that were above me, um, that sometimes I was like, I don't agree with this note, but I have to give it. It really allows me to, especially when it comes to um, taking notes from other producers and other networks and that sort of thing. It allows me to take those better, I think, and take those less personally. Yeah. When it comes to the online stuff, um, it's actually really, really funny. Um, there was a couple of times where I've seen people, um, especially when the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers news came out, there was a couple of people that are like, who is this girl? She has no credits. Um, I didn't have to say anything because other fans immediately jumped in and let them know who I was. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, if you let it get to you, it's going to get to you no matter what. I mean, I think we're all going to see something that's going to bug the crap out of us sometimes. And and for me, I know I know this is a, a male-dominated industry. I know I'm the only female writer with an ongoing in the Massiverse. I know that it's going to be a little bit of a different experience than these incredible men who um, have written so many books before me. But... Um, but I just I focus on on the feedback that I feel like is genuine and valid and coming from a good place. Yeah. Um, and less on the ones that's just like this. This sucks because I don't like the suit or this sucks because I don't want to see another soldier story or this sucks because. You know, I don't like the colors like it's it, you can tell somebody's different. Um, you can also tell when it's somebody that is just really upset that it's that you writing the story and not them. Yeah. Like there's a few people like that. I've always told people that if you're trying to be an aspiring writer and you want to be a professional writer, maybe don't 
like go and troll a bunch of working writers on Twitter yeah. because that kind of stuff sticks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and people like maybe try to be positive to these other writers that you're trying to network and maybe not like think you're going to get ahead by telling everybody what's wrong with what you think is wrong with their stories because yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to get you anywhere. So um, it's very you can like once you get enough of the both good and bad feedback, it's very easy to just hit the mutant button yeah. and be like, OK, I know exactly who you are and where you're coming from. I don't really need to worry about you. Mute. I like the idea that the, the statement you said here as somebody who if you're wanting to give advice, the I don't agree with this note, but I have to give it. And I really like that idea of like, look, I personally love your work as is, but this is how the public might be better uh, accepting to it or something like that. It's a very interesting note. And I think even I know as podcasters, we create this community as well. And we're constantly giving each other's notes. And I think that's a very positive way to to hand out some uh, helping hand. I like that a lot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the best things you can do is just um, be open to this kind of discussion and to talk to people about it. But also always remember that maybe you're not. As fans, we don't know everything that's going on in every room and we don't know every reason why think why decisions are made and um and so what may seem like a very dumb decision to us like honestly uh i don't understand why Batgirl was canceled and i'm very upset about You're it telling me oh my goodness what a bad <laughs> you know, choice um <laughs> i go i i don't know what that decision was all about but I, i'm not gonna be like I mean, what can I do, right? I mean, it was done. Like me yelling on the Twitter sphere about it isn't going to bring it back. And like, that was, that's never been done before. So it probably, they probably had a reason for it. Um, we just, we're not privy to what that reason I was. I just want to know the reason though. <laughs> I know, I know. But, and that's what's so frustrating yeah. about, about being online is that they're, we, as much as we want to know, they don't have an obligation to tell right. us. And, and sometimes um, the mystery is what's best for them, really, is just to not let, and hopefully it dies exactly, down. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. even with Power Rangers, um, you know, there, there was decisions that made that were made that people were just like, this is so dumb. Why did you, why did they do this? And there's so many times I'm being like, there's a thousand reasons why that was done, but we, it's not up to us to tell you. Like, we have our own reasons. And like, as fans, we're not entitled to know everything as much as we want to know everything. And it's hard because in this world and in, even in the world you're building here, information is so freely available that we just assume that we have the right to all of it. And it's, yeah, you have to wait. You have to enjoy what you see. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just finding that happy medium. Yeah. And, and I fall into the same trap, too. I'm one of those people that I'm just like, I don't understand how, why you're doing this. Why would you cancel the show? It was so good. And, you know, it could sometimes it is sometimes just a dumb executive making a bonehead, stupid decision, mm -hmm. you know, um, and sometimes there's another reason you just, you never know, yeah. you never know. And so I don't, I don't like to assume, but, um, but I understand the frustration and, and I, so I try to be as, as transparent as I can be, but I also tend to not say a lot because of that reason. Cause I feel like if I say, start saying too much, people are going to think that I'm saying everything. And, um, Ooh. and so it's always about trying to find that balance. Yeah. I, that's a very good point too, because of your position, they think everything that, that you might be saying on a personal level will translate to, oh, here's the inside scoop. That's a very, that's, that's hard to deal with, I'm sure, as a person who just wants to express your own personal feelings. Yeah, but I mean, thankfully, I've had um, really positive experiences with fans and I, I've learned to mute very quickly the ones that I yeah. think are, are not positive. And that has, mute, the mute, mute button has oh, saved yeah. me so much 
stress. I'm a big fan <laughs> of it too. Yeah. The classic, don't feed the trolls. They'll starve if you don't feed them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's one of those things where, you know, I've had friends that just like, will t- like rant about like this two hour Facebook argument that they got into. And I was just like, but why? Yeah. Why? You're not going to change your mind. They're just out there to get attention. Why are you giving it to them? And now you're so upset and they're happy because you've, they've ruined your day. Like, just ignore it, dude. They're, <laughs> Let it yeah, go. You're they're not- living rent free in your head now. <laughs> you've done that. Yeah. <laughs> you welcomed them in. Exactly. You were speaking to the colors and stuff. I, and I really have to, I love these colors that are in these comic books. All of them, that the, the, the radiant black, of course, and the dead lucky. It reminds me of this. It's a vibrant world. It's almost like a cyberpunk meets anime and and some some old good old Saturday morning cartoons as well. Can you speak to the art team that is working with you on this book? Absolutely. So um, the suit design itself was uh, designed by Federico Sabatini, who uh, is currently, I believe, on Moon Knight. He's an incredible Italian artist that helped me design BB suit. It was. Um, Designed to be a tokusatsu-inspired kind of suit, so it meant to be close-fitting with a helmet um, to hide her identity. I wanted it specifically to be very Day of the Dead-inspired. Um, and because um, because it is based on that sugar skull, that's Calavera, it is, those are painted in beautiful neon colors. And, um, and so that really informed the suit. So her, the, you know, the markings on her face, those are all, you know, very neon. And once we got what the markings on her face looked like, it was very easy to turn that suit into something else. And there were only so many colors we could work with because Ryan, um, Kyle and his, uh, greediness took all of them when he created like four different radiants. So, um, so we had to make sure that BB's costume, costume felt or suit felt distinct and different. And didn't, um, you know, Rogue Sun was black and, re- and red and Inferno Girl was already red. And so we we went with a purple pink because that felt very unique and it felt very uh, thematically close to like a Day of the Dead kind of color scheme. And the book itself, I mean, I uh, really I had just finished the Cyberpunk 2077 yep. storyline. I had I played it when it first came out and I was like, I hate this. I'm going to give it two years and so for them to actually like do something here. And so I finally went back and played the campaign. I really enjoyed it and um, really obsessed with Arcane. And I've always been obsessed with, uh, (laughs) yeah, I've always been obsessed with robots. So like, you know, so and Blade Runner. And so when it became time to like, what kind of book do I want? And what kind of book makes sense? Like design makes sense. um, That's the look we started Mary, like really gravitating towards. And so we brought on a, French Carlo Mangono, who was the artist. Uh, he's incredible. He had done Power Rangers. He had done a good issue of Radiant Black. And um, and he really understood what we were trying to go for. And then Mattia, I had worked with um, on a backup series called The Unleashed that was based on a Twitch series that I had done. And I really loved his colors there. And they, they worked together. They're both Italian, so they can speak to each other in Italian. <laughs> so they worked together really, really well. And then obviously Kyle had a very specific vision for this book as well. So he when it came to color, I mean, Kyle used to be um, a color. I don't what they say. He used to be he did something in editing, but like he knows his colors very, very yeah. well. Um, and um, and he's a director, so he tends to be very specific. And so was also a lot of narrative direction from Kyle, making sure that um, we really got that cyberpunk Blade Runner arcane kind of pot punch, punch and pop. Yeah, that I think you yeah. know. Um, we've kind of lost in like the desaturated DC-ness. Mm-hmm. Maybe, no, I mean, it's changing now thanks to like people like Dan Mora who have gone to yeah. DC and are 
literally changing the look of DC um, back to because he likes Power Rangers. And, yeah, it's starting to, yeah, starting to really and pop. Son as of well. Kal-El and yes. yeah, and all these different ones that are just like bright and poppy again. Yeah. And um, and I think it's good to see that I'll come back. The 90s are apparently back now. I'm so, I, hey, Everybody's doing, I'm happy for it so. too. <laughs> Give me the sharp pointiness <laughs> of all the costumes. I'm I'm okay with that. Everything had spikes. Um Yes, I, and the colors, I like how they kind of translate through the page of, again, with those factions, you could tell this like pink lighting and lightning that makes sense. And and, and then even with the Salvation Gang, everything seems to have a little bit of green here, a little bit of green there. It, it's almost like it reminds you how you're saying yeah. with Cyberpunk. You can tell what gang you were fighting based off of, you know, oh, these guys chose blue or whatever it was. They all, everybody had their faction and it translates so well in comic books, something I didn't really think about before until you see it. And it, it looks very nice. Yeah. The Salvation Gang was actually, um, we liked uh, Batman Forever, that neon yeah. gang in Batman Forever. Yeah. And we wanted to, again, stick to these kind of like cyberpunky neon aesthetics. But we were thinking about what a gang would look like in this kind of technologically advanced city if they're trying to avoid facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Software, uh, software and all the stuff that can happen. And so like, will they be covering their faces? They'd be using these kind of one wheels because those are quick to get around. And like, what kind of colors do we want for them? Moro is very stark and white. And so we really wanted something to balance. And so we immediately were just kind of in love with the Batman Forever kind of neon aesthetic. And so we kind of like went in that direction. Also mixed with a lot of this, like we went online, like everything in everything in um, the Dead Lucky is kind of based on technology that kind of exists now. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, pushed forward a couple of years. And so um, when you look for, there's um, there's these kind of masks you can wear that you allow people, like machines, to not recognize right. your face. They use them a lot in Hong Kong yeah, uh, for the rioting and everything. Um, so that was where that came from. But I think they look really cool. I think that's important to remind everybody. We are talking a lot about different properties and that are farther in the future than this is. This feels like it could be 10 years from now pretty easily. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is meant to be San Francisco in the present, but if our present technology-wise was five years in the future, yeah. basically, Moro has come in and paid billions and billions of dollars to um, upgrade the city with their tech. Yeah. So this is the only city in the world that looks like this yeah. right now. And they came in almost as, a, oh, we'll do a favor. This will be a test run. We're going to do you guys a favor and help you out with this. And I think that from... I'm just personally from just two issues. I have a feeling that the people in San Francisco have a very different outlook on uh, Moro than maybe somebody in Chicago that's like, oh, San Francisco, they're doing fine. They're taken care of. When you're on the streets of San Francisco, you might be seeing things a little differently. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where, you know, Moro wants to, I say you know so much, I hate that's it. okay. <laughs> uh, when Moro wants to um, turn, fix the city, turn it into the city of tomorrow, whatever their tagline is now. What does that mean in terms of the people that are there? Who becomes a desirable and who becomes an undesirable? Like, who do they want in their city? And who makes that decision? uh, Exactly. Yeah. This feels so close to home. It's scary. I mean, I've been to San Francisco so many times. And when you're you're seeing some of these sites, you're like, oh, boy. Yeah, I know. I know where that's at. I know. I've seen this, you know. And so it hits home. It's yeah, it was great. Um, I actually, I, I'm not from San Francisco, but my girlfriend is, and so a couple months before the book started, I actually went there for like three or four days and just walked the city and took a ton of pictures. And honestly, I've been to San Francisco before. I was shocked at what it looked like now. Yeah. 
the the homelessness and the, the crime, like people were leaving their car doors open because they were just so tired of their car windows being yeah, smashed. Common. And yeah, and like there was curfews being put in place and like, you know, like we would walk. It was like a minute it turned dark. Sandra was like, it's not safe to be out. Let's go. Yeah. Like it was such a different experience. And um, and I think one of the most magical moments for me was when we walked into the we were in the financial district and then we walked into the Stockton tunnel. And then on the other side emerged into uh, uh, Chinatown. And I was like, this is it's like a new yeah, world. It really is. It just felt like how distinct those districts are. It's just like, this is a really magical city. Um, it feels like such a a shift from like old and new and tech and this history and the tragedy that comes behind the city with the earthquakes and and the fires. And, and um, I was like, I have this city, ha- this has to be where, it, where this happens because this feels like the only city where it could. Yeah. And even with Chinatown, th- their history with, uniting together to try to find some sort of common ground and and strengthen people and how much that reflects on your story right here where you see the salvation gang which i'm already rooting for i have realized (laughs) is is really just trying to you know find unity amongst themselves and stand up against what they see as oppressors which might not be a hundred percent but yeah that's a wonderful yeah i mean the whole point that chinatown was created was because they weren't allowed anywhere else and um, people forget that. Now it's just a tourist attraction. It's like, no, the whole re- this was done because there was so much discrimination against the Chinese people that they weren't, uh, they were literally not allowed to go anywhere else. And they thrived it's and crazy. then became, you know, decades later, that became the desirable spot. And it's like, hey, that's what happens when you just work together, people. And, and I think in this comic book, we're going to see that. And I'm excited to see Bibby evolve and uh, not even evolve really, but just deal with being herself. And I think that's going to be really nice yeah. to see. Very cool. I hope so. So let's go ahead and get some uh, people out there to the shops, guys. It's going to be October 5th. Number three is hitting the comic book shops, correct? Uh, I believe so. so too. Okay. So You would know better than me, honestly. At this okay. Point. <laughs> it's October 5th, guys. I'm going to let you know that right now. So head to your local comic book shops, if possible. Of course, support the local shops and pick up your copy of The Dead Lucky. And while you're there, check out yes. Radiant Black and... Everything else, I mean, you're going to recognize the, co- the, the, to me, the art just seems so cohesive amongst the entire series. So I'm very happy with that. It makes it feel, combi- you know, combined together. So yeah, go shopping, guys. And um, again, it's October 5th. That's the Dead Lucky. Thank you so much for joining me today, Melissa. Of course, Frank. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a good time. I appreciate that. All right, guys, we will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>